You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Chris Lopez here, and today's webinar is all about 1031 exchanges. So they are powerful ways to go out there and defer capital gains. They can have a huge impact on your wealth, uh, your wealth building. So in this webinar, we're going to break down what a 1031 is, go through some examples of it, and also talk about how investors are using 1031 in today's environment. So if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat on here. Uh, we'll be answering all the Q&A as we go throughout here. And our uh, presenter uh, is 1031X with Steve Wilcox. And before I turn it over to Steve here, I have known 1031X for six or seven years out here since I've been investing. I have referred probably over hundreds of clients or over a hundred clients now. All I've heard is great things. Plus I've used them myself as an investor when I've done my 1031 exchanges. So the reason I wanted to invite Steve and 1031 on the webinar is because they are great at their job. Uh, they have thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of experience transactions under their belt. Plus they just are great at their job and they get it done and they're investors as well. So Steve, I'm very glad having the webinar. I'm happy to be here. We have had so many questions, you know, and not just in 1031s in general, but also 1031ing in, you know, seven, eight percent interest rate environment. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, hearing the presentation, hearing the details. And, you know, you've also guys have been very, uh, I don't know if creative is the right word, but that's where it pops my mind and the ways you can structure deals and get things done. Well, just on that topic, there's certain parts of 1031 exchanges which are very black and white, very rules-oriented, and very strictly enforced. On the other hand, there's areas in the 1031 area where you, where I'm going to say there are creative tax planning strategies that you can use uh, in the more gray areas of the tax code. But starting with 1031, why are they called 1031s? It's because we're dealing with Internal Revenue Code Section 1031. Now, in the tax code, you've got the code, that is the statute, which is Section 1031. But then you have this long string or stream of tax authority that streams out from Section 1031. You've got regulations enacted by the IRS, and then you've got all kinds of other authorities enacted by the IRS and tax court cases. So there's not just Section 1031, but there's this long stream of tax authority. And when I talk today, I'm talking about not just Section 1031, but the entire stream of tax authority that tails out from Section 1031 itself. So, but but when I speak here today and I and I and I explain something to you, I'm not expressing an opinion. I'm expressing the tax uh, law uh, as it's you know it's it's complicated, it's long. But I'm not expressing opinions here. I'm giving you what the law actually says. So, Section 1031. Uh, People think of it as sort of new, but in fact, Section 1031 has been in the tax code for over 100 years. But about 40 years ago, things changed. Section 1031 moves rather slowly. Changes happen rather slowly in this area. But about 40 years ago, a major uh, change occurred in Section 1031. And what happened was, up until this time, about 1980, all Section 1031 exchanges were two-party exchanges. I have a piece of real estate. You have a piece of real estate. We're going to trade them. Oh, they would swap them? Swap real estate until about 1980. And in 1980, a taxpayer uh, performed the first three-party exchange. And he, went, he, he said this. He said, I want to sell you my property. And it was a big company he was selling to. And he says but I don't want you to give me the money. Instead, let's set up a trust account and you, the buyer, are the trustee. But I, the, the seller, am the beneficiary and I am going to tell you where to spend the money that you're holding in trust for me. 
and he identified property and the the buyer of his old property purchased the new property with the money that was held in trust and the irs said oh no you can't do that that's not the way this goes it means two-party swap it means the old system and this court case went i don't know if it went to the united states supreme court or not i my memory is that it did and the irs lost the irs lost that case wow and when that happened the irs were like uh, this opens the door to making 1031 exchange much more useful to taxpayers. They don't have to find the swap. They have to sell to one person and buy from another person. So that case up the modern day 1031 then? It certainly did. It certainly did. And when the IRS realized what was happening after losing this court case, they surrounded the process. They said, we have to abide by this case law, but we're going to tighten down the rules. We're going to enact a whole bunch of new rules to tighten the screws on this court case. And that's when companies like ours came into, it, came into existence. They said, you can't let the buyer hold the money. You've got to let an independent company like 1031x.com hold the money and you have these other restrictions on timing we'll get to those but there are strict and, the, and this is the black and white part of 1031 exchanges is uh is the the strict deadlines that you're working under uh under section 1031. all right <clears throat> so that's a little background that history. is fascinating so I mean, i've been around for a few years and i've never heard that story and you know i want to give a, a reminder out there or i guess a, a piece of advice to all of our listeners and viewers out there as steve goes through and talks about uh some examples on how it works like learn it is a lot um if you're thinking of doing 1031 exchange call and talk to 1031x.com and their team well before you even sell your property so you can understand what your options are i've seen too many people they kind of get the process started after the fact. Uh, the sooner you talk to them, the better. So go here and learn. But then once you have an inkling, reach out to them would be, would be my recommendation. I appreciate that, Chris. And well, we, we don't want people paying taxes. Um, that's been my goal for a long time. <laughs> I love it. Yes. So I cut you off there, Steve. Uh, what we tell people, see, we get paid only when there's a successful exchange. We're like a real estate broker. We get paid based on the success of the, of the transaction taking place. And we tell people, if you contact us early, we can be much more helpful to you. And, and we're, we don't charge for the planning. And it has to be a 1031 to be most effective needs to be part of a plan. And we can be more helpful to you if you contact us during the planning phase. So, but back to 1031 and, and, and what it does and what it doesn't do. The normal rule when you, when you sell a piece of commercial real estate, if it's gone up in value, then the normal rule is, is that you pay tax on the increase in value from the date you purchased it to the date you sell it. You pay tax on the gain. Now, I've oversimplified that because in that statement, I've excluded uh, adjustments to tax basis in terms of depreciation or capital improvements, but I've excluded in that statement that I just made that you pay tax on the gain. It's more complicated than that because the gain isn't all solely based on what you paid for the property. It's based on what you paid for the property with all sorts of adjustments that keep moving that tax basis year by year. But the general rule is you pay tax on the gain. Well, Section 1031 says if you follow the rules and you repurchase another piece of investment real estate that you don't have to pay the tax on an immediate basis. In the IRS parlance that says, the gain has been realized, that is able to be calculated because you bought it and you sold it. So we, we know how much you made. 
So in IRS parlance, the gain has been realized, but but Section 1031 allows you to not recognize it. And recognizing means the tax liability is due. So that's what Section 1031 is unique almost in the tax code where it says you get to defer the tax liability from one property into the other. And I want to make the point right away that Section 1031 at this point in time only applies to investment real estate. To quote the statute exactly, it says the property must be either held for investment or used in trade or business. That's a direct quote from the code. You held for investment or used in trade or business. Most times it's held for investment, but it's a little broader than that. It can also be uh, used in trade or business. So it only applies to real estate that fits that definition. Can I, uh, I want to ask a question from the audience here. So this is from Diane. She says, I have gone through a successful 1031 exchange several years ago, starting as a rental, and now it is my primary residence. I'm now um, in a later stage, and I need to know about the process of either selling my home to buy another smaller residence or dying and willing to my children through my will or trust. Might be a lot to answer right now, but I think these are the situations where that's why I should talk to you before we even list the property, right? Well, death is always an exit strategy. <laughs> well, I, it, one we all go through. <laughs> My favorite thing in Tender World is swap till you drop. Yeah, that's right. So we'll get to that. But uh, shall I address the 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 principal residence? Yes. Th- that's not even in the deck, actually. Yeah, if you can, because that's I know we've had other people ask that question. So if you can talk about that, how does that work? People people think, oh well, Section ten thirty one allows you to exclude exclude not defer exclude from your tax liability the first five hundred thousand dollars of gain if you're a married couple uh, and it's your principal residence. That's Code Section ten uh, one twenty one. So the question is, how does ten thirty one and one twenty one interact together? Well, they do. So. First of all, the IRS has said, we are going to create a safe harbor, again, uh, IRS parlance, safe harbor. And it says, if you 1031 exchange from an invest, a true investment property into a true investment property, if you hold the new investment property, the, relinqu- the replacement property, the new property for two years, and then you change the use of it, convert it to your principal residence, for instance, Yep. Then we will not question the ten thir- the validity of the ten thirty one exchange after two years. Wow. So they've created a safe harbor. The reason that they did this was because people were converting to principal residence sooner than that, and it wasn't that long ago where you could ten thirty one exchange convert to a principal residence, live there for uh, two years, and sell it and uh, escape at least the first five hundred thousand of gain. Well, the IRS once again said, this is too good to be true for the taxpayer. We're not going to allow this to happen. So they changed the rule. And they said, first of all, we're going to have a safe harbor, two years. If you convert sooner than than two years, you don't necessarily get dinged, but you're not in the safe harbor. So you're taking a much greater tax risk if you convert their new property, replacement property, to your principal residence sooner than two years. It's not a total failure. It's not a it's not a mandatory failure, but it's a probable failure. But then they made it even more complicated. And they said this. If you do that, if you 1031 exchange into a property and then convert it to a principal residence, then you're not going to get to escape from the tax liability altogether. We're going to prorate So as an example, let's just say you follow the rule and you do a 1031 exchange and you hold it as an investment for two years and then you move into it and then you live in it for three years and then you sell it. The IRS says in that situation, two years held for investment, three years as your principal residence, 40% is going to be taxable and Mm. 60% is not going to be taxable with one more proviso. 
the accumulated uh, depreciation recapture all the way back to the old property and into the new property. You've been presumably taking a depreciation allowance if this is improved real estate. All of the depreciation recapture is going to be taxed. And in my example that I just gave, 40% is going to be taxed at capital gains rate. This is of the rest of the gain. 40% will be taxed at capital gains rate, and 60% will be excluded under Section 1031. Hope that answered the question. It did. That was great. Thank you. We've done these. Yes. This question comes up. Yeah. It arises. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, and all the more reason. I know we got some more questions coming in. Uh, so we'll. I know we're going to talk more about this in the presentation, but just obviously Steve and the team are experts, and this is why you, you reach out to them. All right. So what slide are we on here, Steve? I want to go to this one that says, how does it work? Great. The next one. Yeah, that one. Uh, first of all, I wanted to make the point. If you look at the pie chart, you've got this uh, recaptured depreciation tax at 25%. So this is the gray area over here. That's right. And then you've got the uh, the uh, the yellow, which is uh, federal capital gains uh, rate. And then you've got the surcharge tax of 38 and then there's 13.3. I wanted to point that out. That says capital gains rate by state. Now, that number, that 13.3, I think is the California state tax. It's much lower in Colorado. It's only about 5% in Colorado. I think it's 4.6. So it's much lower. Yeah. That's a, that, that number is going to vary state by state. But that 13% is more like a Illinois, New York, California type of tax rate. Now, I had one of my friends sell a property a couple years in California, and they were, that 13% looks familiar. Yeah. So uh, the what, what the point is, to, there's two points I want to make here, and that is, is that Section 1031 will allow you to defer all of these taxes. It, you know, er, everything, the depreciation recapture, the surcharge, the capital, the federal capital gains, and the state tax, it'll allow you to defer all of those. Again, one exception, a very few states, Pennsylvania comes to mind that says we're not going to, for state income tax purposes, we're not going to recognize 1031 exchanges at all. Oh. So you're going to pay that state tax in a very few uh, limited numbers of states. You're not going to get to defer that. In this case, the blue area, the 13.3 or whatever that state tax is. Most uh, states do recognize Section 1031 and allow you to defer state in income taxes, too. But the, and Colorado is one of the states that absolutely. does recognize Absol it, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, yes. But the other point that I want to make here is that, of course, absent a 1031 exchange, all of these taxes would be due. And with a 1031 exchange, none of these taxes are going to be due. They're going to be deferred. But frequently we talk to people on the phone and they say, well, the, you know, the capital gains rate isn't that high. It's only 20%. So is, is a 1031 really beneficial to me? And we frequently get people, they say they underestimate the tax liability that they're going to be faced with because they don't look at these other three sections of the pie chart. They just look at the yellow part and they ignore the others when they're doing their own tax estimate of uh, of what their tax liability is going to be. And, and, and they may talk themselves out of uh, uh, doing a 1031 exchange and then be surprised by the magnitude of the tax liability uh, when they actually prepare the return. So that's about all I really wanted to talk about uh, uh, on that page right there. Okay. <clears throat> So a little bit more of the consequences of a 1031 exchange. Uh, this is the time when I want to talk about tax basis because okay. that's important in the 1031 area. Tax basis is an accounting standard. And with improved real estate, if you just go out and buy a piece of real estate, your tax basis is what you paid for the property. 
that's your tax basis at the beginning. It's cost. It's simply cost. But after that, the tax basis becomes a moving target or a moving number every year. If you have improved real estate, you're taking a depreciation allowance, which is driving down the tax basis. Year by year, year by year, your tax basis is going down because of the depreciation that you're taking. Not only that, depreciation on improved real estate is mandatory. If you don't take it as a deduction on your tax return, the IRS is going to say, well, we're reducing your basis anyway. So strangely, it's mandatory. So on the other hand, your tax basis is being, it can be pushed back up. Depreciation is pushing it down. Your tax basis can be pushed up by making capital improvements to the real estate. Capital improvements are improvements to the real estate that have long-lasting benefits. Things like, I put a new roof on the building. I repaved the parking lot. Uh, I put in a new HVAC system. If you make capital improvements to the property that drives the basis uh, higher, and it alters your depreciation allowance as well, because those improvements can also be depreciated. Now, most people, when they get a chance, they say, you know what, I, I, instead of driving up the basis of my investment property, instead I want to expense those items as much as I possibly can in the year that they are incurred because I get an immediate tax benefit uh, by doing so instead of a long-term benefit by adding them uh, to basis. So that's the, the, the moving target of, of basis. So let's look at the example on this page. In here, <clears throat> you sell the duplex for seven fifty, and your tax basis is five fifty. Well, that's probably in in, in our conversation here. the 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 two hundred thousand dollars of gain there is some combination of uh, depreciation and and appreciation, depreciation driving down the tax basis and the value of the property being driven up by market forces. So this $200,000 is some combination of uh, depreciation, recapture, and, uh, and uh, appreciation in the real estate. Okay. Uh, but go going forward, it says that you perform a 1031 exchange and you trade from a, a sale price of $750 to a purchase price of $900. So you traded up in value in this simple example by 150,000 from 750 to 900. So the question is what's the basis in the new property? And I said that generally the tax basis is your cost. Mm -hmm. But when you do a 1031 exchange and you buy a new property, a replacement property, it's not your cost. The rule is, and it's right here, it says you carry forward the old basis. In our example, it's 550. You carry forward the old basis of 550, and you add to the 550 the increase in value comparing the sale to the purchase. So in this case, it went up by 150. The old basis was 550. You add 550 to 150, and you're at 700,000. You pay 900. That's not the basis. Not the basis. 700 is your basis. And that is 700 is your basis for calculating future gain and also setting your new depreciation allowance. Mm. Your new depreciation allowance is not based on 900. It's based on 700. Just think this through with me. If you got to reset your basis to the new purchase price, to 900. You would no longer be deferring taxes. You would be avoiding taxes altogether. If you reset it to the new to the new purchase price and then you, and the and the basis reset to 900 instead of 700 and you sold that property and you said, "Well, my basis I reset it to 900." Well, then you, you then you avoid the gain 100%. That sounds like a great thing to do. How do I do it? Well, not under Section 1031. No. <laughs> you, 
Yeah, not under Section 1031. <laughs> so this is a downside of Section 1031. What I just described is a downside. That's a, that's a negative of Section 1031. I think that the benefits far, far outweigh this negative, but it definitely is a negative. And uh, I guess that's about all I have to say about tax basis at this point in time. Oh, I, I want to say one more thing. One more thing, and that is Section 1031 is reported on Internal Revenue Code Form 8824. And it's only a one or one and a half page form. And you look at it and say, how, how complicated can this be? It's very complicated. Reporting a 1031 exchange on a tax return is very complicated because the form 8824 tries to do three things on one form. Number one, it asks if you've complied with the deadlines imposed on Section 1031 exchanges. Section one, did you comply with the deadlines? Section number two, how much gain are you deferring? How much tax avoidance are you benefiting by by doing this exchange? That's section two. And section number three is, what's the basis calculation? How did you arrive at the basis calculation? That's what we've been talking about right here is uh, how, how how have you recalculated the basis in the new property for depreciation purposes going forward. So it's a deceptively uh, uh, simple form with three different pieces trying to do three different things on, on, on one single form. So, yeah, that slide, like-kind requirement. Uh, I don't even really like the term like-kind because it's difficult to puzzle through what those words mean. I've told you already that Section 1031 only applies to uh, sale and repurchase or exchange, however you want to term it, of real estate. It applies to no other assets. Until the Donald Trump regime, Donald Trump's, you know, he's a real estate guy, but 1031 used to apply to all sorts of other tangible assets. We used to do exchanges of aircraft. We did a, a, a fishing trawler, classic automobiles, bullion. We did an exchange of, of gold one time uh, from Australia to the United States. They didn't want to move the gold from Australia, physically move the gold from Australia to the United States. So they sold the gold in Australia, they 1031 exchanged uh, the money with us and they purchased in the United States. So it used to apply to artwork and cattle and all sorts of things. But all that went away uh, during the Donald Trump uh, presidency. And now it only implies to real property, real estate. Why did it go away? Well, any particular reason or is it just that's how the, the tax gods made it work tax gods hmm interesting expression uh i didn't know there were tax gods if they are i should redirect my prayers (laughs) (laughs) uh i would say and this is a guess that the the real estate lobby is a lot stronger than any any other lobby okay and our our business has always been 95% real estate anyway. So the change in the law affected us not at all. Our company, not at all. Because we are always doing real estate exchanges primarily with a smattering of other things uh, thrown in. Uh, but I've also said already, knowing that I'm repeating myself, that it only applies to real estate held for investment or used in trade or business. Oh, it's confined of what you can use it for. Uh, now... Real estate, what does that mean? Well, strangely, the IRS doesn't tell you what real estate is. It doesn't tell you what real property is. They, say, they said, you know what we're going to do? Real property law has always been the province of the states. And we don't want to define, we don't want to involve all 50 states and impose our own definition of, of real property on the states. So instead, we're going to let all 50 states define real estate the way they always have. Hmm. 
So what that means is that every state, whether it's real estate and held for investment or using trade or business, can be slightly different in each state. I know Colorado law the best. And in Colorado, real estate is, is very expansive. So uh, one of the good ways to determine whether a property is real estate or not is, did you get a property tax bill? Is your property mm. being taxed as real estate by the state? If your property is being taxed as real estate by the state, then you can be pretty darn sure that it's real estate. It's a good test. Not the sole test, but it is a good test. But uh, I want to move on and look at what qualifies for a like kind of requirement. A couple, a couple more down. Let's get there. We are. So uh, each of these listed properties here can qualify for a 1031 exchange, and in particular in Colorado. Water rights can be 1031 exchanged, and it even includes, strangely, shares in ditch companies. They can be exchanged as well? Shares in water companies, irrigation water companies can be 1031 exchanged. Hmm. Yes, we've done those. And it says here, uh, second column, it says conservation easements. Well, it's broader than that. It's all easements. We've done many exchanges where someone sold an easement across their property and 1031 exchanged into non-easement, any other kind of real estate that you want. So looking at this, first of all, any of those property rights there can be 1031 exchanged. And, but the, the key point is that each one of those can be exchanged for anything else on that list. You don't have to stick with, I'm selling oil rights, I have to buy oil rights. I'm selling an easement, I have to buy an easement. It's not that way at all. You can sell oil rights and buy a storage facility. You can sell water rights and, and buy uh, a fractional interest. Oh, that's the real strength of 1031 exchanges, is the flexibility to change not only the uh, geographic but also the strategic interest in real estate. That's the real strength is to be able to change the shape of your real estate investment because of how broadly real estate is defined. I didn't realize there were that many, uh, I guess, options or pieces of property that qualify. And so I see, I see some questions in here. A lot of people or quite a few people are saying, hey, if I sell a single family home rental, they can exchange into any of these bullet points, right? Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. All right. Yes. As long as they're held for investment or used in trade or business. Yes. In law school, they teach you that real property is a bundle of rights. It's not a single right. It's a bundle of rights. And these are examples of how that bundle of rights might exist. Like, I only own the oil under the property. I don't own the surface rights. Well, that's part of the bundle, or I, I own the entire property, but I want to sell the right to someone else to cross it with an easement. Well, you're sending one of those bundles of, of rights. Or uh, I'm a, I own the property, but I want to lease it out. Well, possession is one of those bundle of rights. So <clears throat> there was a, another court case where someone had the right to buy a piece of real estate. They had it under contract. And this was back in the good old days when real estate was going up in value. We all remember that. It wasn't that long ago. Anyway, uh, is anyone laughing? I'm uh, laughing. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they got a property under contract, and it was in the construction phase. And it, and it took about 18 months to build this property. And during this time, the value of the property had accelerated. So- the the con the contract buyer assigned their rights under the contract to a different buyer who wanted the property more than they did and they were paid cash for the right to buy the property 
Hmm. They sold their right to buy the property. They sold the contract. They assigned their contractual rights. And the right to buy a property is within that bundle of rights. And we did a 1031 exchange. And all they sold was their right to buy the property. That is fascinating to me. I've never heard that before. So there are some just really creative ways to go out there and do these exchanges. Creative, but it's supported by the tax law. Yeah. Right? This case law to support that position. We're not shooting from the hip. We're not. So I see a couple questions coming in here. Um, are there any issues with uh, 1031 exchanging from one state to another. Does geographic location matter? The short answer is no. Uh, just to expand that slightly, with, when it comes to real estate exchanges, you can't exchange real estate that's in the United States for real estate outside of the United States, even if the property outside the United States is held for investment. Because the IRS looks at that and says, well, the reporting requirements of other countries we have zero control over, so we're afraid we're going to lose the tax dollars forever. Yep. Not only is it going to be deferred, we're going to lose track of this forever. So you can't do that. You also can't trade, strangely, this, does, this really doesn't make any sense, but a lot of what I'm telling you doesn't necessarily make sense. A lot of these 1031 exchange rules are just rules that the IRS has created often to limit the usefulness of 1031 exchanges. Mm. So that's why they don't make sense is because they're just rules. So here's the other part of that rule, which is you also can't trade from property you hold for investment outside the United States back into the United States. Well, that's completely illogical from an exchange or an IRS point of view, because there you would be taking property that uh, you had lost track of and exchange it into something that you do have track of and can keep track of, but that's still the rule. Finally, you can trade foreign real estate for foreign real estate. We've done exchanges for Americans who are subject to American tax law, and we've exchanged property in Europe held for investment for property in Europe held for investment that would otherwise be subject to United States tax law. Wow, that's so interesting. It's very rare. Yeah. We've only done this two or three times in the life of our uh, company. So it's very rare. But that's the law. But that's the creativity and the flexibility you have with it. P potentially, potentially, yes. Uh huh. So I have another question on here, and I might be jumping and gun on the presentations. If you want to save this question, uh, let me know. But uh, great question here. What is an example of when it's wiser to not do a 1031 exchange? There's all kinds of reasons for that. First of all, the question is, to, to kind of reverse it a little bit, and this is a question that we ask our clients, and that is, well, well, why are you selling? Right? Well, that's the first question. Why are you selling? Because in a Section 1031, you have to believe that the decisions that you're making to sell one property and buy another property are going to improve your situation. Otherwise, the question of why are you selling? Right? You have to ask that question and answer that question first, is why are we selling? Yep. You have to believe that you're going to improve your situation. Well, the most common answer to the question is when should you not do it? It's when you're sick of real estate. Now, there's ways of making real estate more palatable, less hands-on, more passive, than most real estate investing is. I own a lot of real estate. I've done a lot of 1031 exchanges. For me, the word passive and real estate have never gone together. <laughs> they just never have gone together. <clears throat> I, talk, I hear people talk about passive real estate investing. I've never experienced that. But there are ways, I hear, to make it more passive. So 
if if you're if you're asking, God, I am just sick of the rat race of uh, real estate. That's one answer. Excuse me. But another answer is, I think I can improve my financial investment situation by selling the real estate, paying the tax, and investing in something else altogether different that will more than make up for the fact that I'm having to pay the tax. You know, I want to sell this uh, condominium in Aurora where I have high turnover, and every time it turns over, I've got a, a remodel of the condo, and I want to buy NVIDIA stock. Well, hell, who am I to who am I to talk you out of a decision like that? And guess what? I don't. I don't. I listen to you and what you're trying to, to accomplish. That's all. So th those are two reasons. I'm sure there's lots of other good reasons why you wouldn't want to do a 1031 exchange. But if you're selling and buying real estate, it almost always makes sense to do a 1031 exchange. If you're staying in the market, it almost always makes sense. Have you seen, sorry to cut you off there, but have you seen, yeah. I think this might be where this question came from, you know, a lot of our, our listeners and our investors, you know, they own a lot of, like, you know, single family or, you know, residential family, you know, properties. So, hey, single family or duplex, sell that. And a lot of times, you know, they, they've sold that and uh, 1031 into fourplex. But selling, hey, I've got this uh, great property, low LTV, you know, at a 4% interest rate. And then looking at a 40% or higher down payment at a 7%, 8% interest rate, obviously like those, you know, the numbers aren't as good as they were the last 15 years. So have you seen a slowdown in people doing 1031s or it's more about, hey, rather than, hey, you're 1031 from basically residential to residential, maybe you're 1031 into residential into one of these other 20 bullet points. Are you seeing money shift differently now or volume change with that like avatar in mind? And I ask this too, because that's the situation I'm in. I've got a bunch of residential properties. That's what I know and that's what I've owned. Certainly our business has slowed down in the last 18 months. Yeah. But that's purely a function of interest rates. People still want to transaction, want to transact, but they're fearful of, I, I own an office building with a 4.5% mortgage on the property. And I was talking to a real estate broker, and I said, what are cap rates now on a Class C office building in Denver? And he says, probably nine. Nine cap. You could probably sell your property for a nine cap. Ooh. So what that means, I'm sure everyone understands this, is that real estate prices are going down. Yields on real estate are stable maybe, or maybe down. Uh, but because of higher interest rates, which are almost always part of a, a real estate transaction, mortgages are mostly used on almost every real estate transaction. Not everyone, but almost always. So, yep. so as cap rates climb, real estate values decline. So I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to the broker and I'm like, well, I'm not selling. So I'm not a 1031 exchange candidate. Yeah, I'm not because I'm not selling. Yeah. Because it probably is worth more to me than selling it at a nine cap. So uh that's just a perfect example of how the real estate market is being slowed down by rising interest rates. Oh yeah. No. And our business has suffered too. Yeah. That that's not surprising. Um so a question here from Edward. He asked, what is the impact of taxes on properties that are inherited uh, that had 1031 exchanges before? So well, my mom and dad did a bunch of 1031s. I inherit the property. Let's look at the slide that addresses that because it's in here and it's the swap till you drop it. It's, it's a ways down in here. It's way down in. Well, I can just address it. Uh, it's way down in estate, estate planning drop to your swap because, and I'm telling you, I'm in exactly this situation personally. Uh, 
And that is, the current tax law says this. When you die, property in your estate, not property that you've gifted away, that's a different situation, property that you still own when you die, the tax law, as it's currently written, says this. We've talked about tax basis earlier and how tax basis is carried over when you do an exchange and how tax basis is a, is a moving target. But the tax code, as it's currently written, says that when you die, assets, broadly speaking, not just real estate, but anything that you own, your stock portfolio, your classic automobile, your Renoir, Everything, excluding retirement accounts, not you know tax-deferred retirement accounts, I'm not talking about them, but I'm talking about just about every other asset, Okay, gets what they called a stepped-up basis, IRS parlance, stepped-up basis. That is, the old basis is not the basis of the heirs. The heirs get a stepped-up basis to fair market value date of death. So, wow, I had this low basis property that I've held for many years, and I know the law, and I'm going to hold it until I die. And when I die, all of that gain, all of that gain from my low basis to the fair market value on the day I die is wiped out, and my heirs have no tax liability associated with their sale of the property. Now, of course, if after I die, the property continues to go up in value, then your heirs will be responsible for taxes on the increase in value from the date of death to the date of sale. But if you sell right away, you escape uh, the tax liability altogether. That's a very powerful uh, uh strategy so in that case do you have you seen from people like doing their estate planning because i know one of the issues is a lot of times the children and their heirs you know they they don't really want to operate the property i have seen probably more horror stories or heard more horror stories about hey so-and-so passes and four kids get the rental portfolio and it just does not work out very well do a lot of people use that with hey when that happens the the death happens the stuff the basis happens just basically sell right away? Is that often a strategy or, or do you know? There are real estate brokers who farm estate-owned real estate. That's who they like to approach for listings or to purchase the real estate is real estate held in estates. Mm. And part of the reason for that is you have Heirs who aren't familiar with the property, heirs that don't want to be familiar with the property, and heirs that have no tax liability if they sell it. So what that results in often is a motivated seller. If a property is held in an estate, frequently you have a motivated seller. Mm. And that's what we're all looking for in the real estate business is motivation, whether it be on the buy side or on the sell side. Yep. We're, we're all looking for motivation. So certainly I have seen that a lot where uh, property is promptly disposed of as part of the settling of an estate. Yes. And I think it's fertile ground as a real estate broker to farm those areas. And I think it's fertile ground as an investor to approach those people. I've tried. So that is uh, very insightful and that makes complete sense why, yeah, there would be brokers targeting that that audience. So we have about 10 minutes left on the webinar. And I know uh, in the past we've done these 1031 webinars, uh, you know, with you and your team. Uh, we can go on for hours. Questions roll in. There's all sorts of nuanced topics. We have about 10 minutes left. What topics uh, do you want to cover or impart on our audience? I have two topics that I want to make sure that I cover. Wonderful. That I want people to leave this webinar for sure. And the first one is this, and this for, applies to all 1031 exchanges, and that is if you want to defer all those taxes, the pie chart, if you want to defer all of the taxes 
The rule is this. Equal or up in value, equal or up in equity. Simple. Equal or up in value, equal or up in equity. Now, let me flip back to a previous slide, and it's the one with the buildings on it. The one showing the, the, the couple of buildings, I thought. Doesn't it have, don't we have one that shows two buildings? Anyway, equal or up in, it's this one. This one. Okay. Equal or up in value. <clears throat> yep. We got up on the slide yeah. here. All right. Or the so, screen. Uh, in this case, in the example, they trade exactly uh, equal or up in value for 500 for 500. And in this case, they had uh, equity of 320000 on the old property, the relinquished property. That is the 1031 exchange proceeds. Equity just means how much cash you're walking away from the exchange with typically. It's a little bit of an oversimplification. But in this case, we had 320 of equity. And if you look down, they traded equal or up in value, exactly equal in uh, value. But then they used the entire 1031 exchange proceeds as part of the purchase price with a very low mortgage of only only 80,000. And then they brought in outside cash from some source for the other 100 to get to the to, to the to the net of a 500,000. So two things I oh equal or up in value, equal or up in equity. Okay? Got it got to abide by that rule. However, if you trade down in value or you take some cash out of the deal, that doesn't mean that the 1031 has no value. You can end up with a partially tax-deferred exchange instead of a 100% tax-deferred exchange. I said, if you want to defer 100% of your tax liability, equal or up in value, equal or up in equity. But if you trade down in value or take some equity out in the form of cash, the, the 1031 can still be valuable to you. You're going to have some tax liability and some tax deferral. So one misconception of 1031 exchanges that we hear a lot is, and that is, is it says you've got to replace debt on the old property with debt on the new property. That's not the rule. The rule is what I spoke. Equal up in value, equal up in equity. Hmm. Not equal or up in value, equal or up in debt. That's a common misconception that you hear. Now, frequently yeah. it works out that way, but look at the example. This was a perfectly valid exchange where they traded down in mortgage. They went from 180 to, to 80. Of course, they had to infuse the transaction with $100,000 from somewhere else. Uh, the upshot of this discussion about this right now is that, and this is another downside of 1031 exchanges, it's difficult to deleverage in uh, with that rule, equal up in value, equal up in equity, makes it difficult to deleverage in a 1031 exchange. Hmm. So what do people do in those situations then? Or just when they're trying to deleverage? Yeah. Or just I guess they they pay some taxes and just kind of par partial or prorate. I guess prorate is not, the right word. First of all, try not to trade too much in value, up in value. Or be willing to infuse the transaction with outside cash, like is in this example. Yeah. But it's not great if you're trying to get out of debt. Of course, a lot of real estate investors consider mortgages a good thing. Yeah. And uh, they, they often are. They can be terrible, but they can often be good. So, uh, but <clears throat> we have some very conservative investors that are like, she had really like to get out of debt, and we're saying, well, you can, but it's 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 difficult in, in within an exchange. So that's one thing is uh, that I've just explained: equal up in value, equal up in equity. Keep that in mind on on every exchange if Great. you want to defer all of your taxes. The other rule is the is the deadlines that we haven't hit, and and this is back to the black and white part of ten thirty one exchanges. Uh, <clears throat> this is down here somewhere. Uh, it's way, it's way at the back. It says this, from the date of the sale, uh, from the date of the sale, it's timing, way down here. Uh, 
from the date of the sale of the relinquished property, you only have 45 days to identify in writing the potential replacement properties that you want to buy. And then from the date of the sale of the relinquished property, you will have only 180 days to actually buy one of the properties that you have successfully identified in writing. There's other restrictions that say, if you want to identify more than three potential replacement properties, you can, but the rules get more complex. The simplest rule, which applies to almost all 1031 exchanges is no more than three properties. If you, if you want to talk to us about some more elaborate rules about identification, they still have to be in writing. Uh, but if you're buying multiple small properties after the sale of a large property, more than three, that's also possible. These rules are hard and fast. I talked about the form 8824. And the Part number one is, have you ab abided by the strict rules? Well, some of the strict rules are the 45-day identification rule and the 180-day re repurchase rule. And those go on the 8824 in part one. So you really can't, shouldn't, can't fudge these rules. These, uh. these are hard and fast. I, I totally agree, and this is something you know investors should be mindful of. And you know that for that forty-five day rule, I always tell my clients, and when I'm doing my own investments, not just just don't have the property identified. Uh, you should be identified, hopefully under contract, and pass through due diligence. Because if you pick a property and then day fifty rolls around, and you don't like it, uh, you don't have another property identified, you're in trouble, right? Exactly right, Chris, and that's why we say to people. Call us early, and the 1031 has to be part of a plan. Yes. You have to, the, the, the more you know about where you're going with the money after you sell, the more likely it is that your exchange is going to work. Because the reason for failures of 1031 exchanges, above all, most of the exchanges fail because at the end of 45 days, people come to us and they say, either we don't want to buy anything we've identified or we haven't any find, found anything at all. One or the other. That's why 1031 exchanges. That's the most common reason? By far. Hmm. By far. Last point. Maybe I have a few more minutes. But the last point is, is that when you, in order to successfully complete a 1031 exchange, you have to hire a company either ours or like ours. I'm sorry, it's a requirement. And that is you have to hire a company like ours to hold the money between the sale and the purchase. And you have to use a company like ours where the money is safe. Yeah. We've been in business for 30 years now and no exchange has failed because of what we've done. Not a single exchange has failed because of what we've done. And believe me, we, we get calls from people, well, we're at the closing table, we're buying a property today. And we're like, well, you have to tell us. <laughs> the money's sitting there. You know, all of, our, all of the money sits in demand deposit accounts. They're available 100% of the time. And every exchange gets a brand new uh, account. Your money is commingled with nobody else's. Mm. So you're getting a separate account and the bank requires the taxpayer, the exchanger's signature on the wire transfer authorization. So we can't move your, your money without your written authorization. So what I'm, what I'm trying to impress upon you is that when you do use our company and you use us as your escrow company, because that's essentially what we are, the IRS calls us qualified intermediaries. IRS parlance again qualified intermediaries, but all we are is an escrow company. Mm. So, uh, uh, sorry, you've got to use an escrow company and we charge a small fee to, to do this. And we only get paid when you sell. Yeah. Well, Steve, this has been great. And, you know, even with, I feel like in 1031 exchanges, you know, I learned about them years ago and got so excited about you know, the the tax savings, which has a huge, you know, multiplier effect on just wealth creation. 
And every year between like talking to people like you and seeing more deals, I always like learn more and more about 1031. So there's, there's this to keep in mind, or hey, there's this creative thing, or hey, we could do this and do this. So like, as we were talking about, as you're planning on doing one, talk sooner uh, with your CPA, of course, to figure out any potential tax consequences, uh, and also talk with your QI. They should be in that same batch of phone calls with your broker, your lender, you talk to QI, you talk to CPAs well at that same time to properly plan things out. Because I've been a part of a few transactions on the other side of the table where the seller is taking their check and they're talking about doing 1031. In my mind, I'm like, oh, buddy, I'm a fellow investor. Don't touch that check. But I'm not their agent. So I'm just like, oh, I'm butting my tongue. And it's we, so painful. So please plan ahead, everyone. We hate that call. That call of... <laughs> I just sold the property. I heard about 1031 exchange. I'm holding the check. And we're like, sorry, we're not getting in bed with you. This is a failed exchange. Yep. Uh, uh, last point I wanted to make about that stepped up basis to fair market value date of death. I'm on that roller coaster. I have several pieces of real estate that I have done numerous exchanges to get into the property that I currently own. So I have gained deferred and gained deferred and gained deferred. And there are several pieces of real estate. There's no way that I can sell that real estate without doing another 1031 exchange. Just because your basis is so, so low, low, right? So low after <clears throat> a stringing together 1031 exchanges, following my own good advice, I suppose. And now I'm stuck being unable to sell any of this real estate unless I know that I'm improving my situation. Mm -hmm. There we are. Well, that's, I would say that's a good problem to have and part of playing the game. Exactly. So Steve, this has been wonderful. Thank you for presenting. Um, and thank you for, you know, helping me and my clients over the years. Anyone out there, if you guys have questions, definitely use 1031 as a resource uh, and definitely put them on your list to use as a QI so that I've used them and many of my clients have, and they've always done a job and been extremely helpful. So thank you. No, thank you very much for the invite, Chris. I very much appreciate it. Awesome. All right, everyone. Well, we had a great time and we'll see you for next webinar soon. Bye. Adios.